This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It's May the 12th. My name is John Dunn and I'm reminding you that registration for the Best Friends National Conference is now open. We'll have a link in the show notes of your podcast player or bestfriends.org slash conference. That link will have everything you need to know as well as links to register bestfriends.org slash conference. Now this week on the podcast, we're talking about governance. Specifically, this episode is about the governing bodies of nonprofit organizations, the board of directors. Now, they're sort of like plumbing or the internet. You might not think about them very often, but when it's broken, you definitely notice. And right now, in 2022, with all the shifts in the industry, the economy, our third year now into this global pandemic, maybe this is a bit hyperbolic, but we're in a time like no other in generations. And it's organizations that have strong leadership starting at the board level, that are going to succeed and thrive during this era. This is a big topic and one that hopefully we can do more about in the future because there definitely is not a one-size-fits-all. But to get a start on it, thrilled to have the Senior Development Specialist with the Best Friends National Embed Team back on the podcast, Trish Tolbert. I'm on the National Shelter Embed Team, which basically is one of a couple of groups that works with shelters, both nonprofit and municipal around the country, to help them learn how to improve their life-saving practices and really be able to sustain the life-saving in order to get to 90%. So I am a a bit of a unicorn in that my background is fundraising, not life-saving. But that came as a result of our folks hearing from shelters and other groups, rescues, humane societies, that they wanted someone who understood how fundraising worked to be part of that team. And so when we, for instance, embed leadership in a particular shelter, or perhaps we don't have someone actually embedded in the shelter. Maybe they're doing what we call an embed light, and they are working remotely for an intense period of time, two to three months. If there are fundraising issues that come up, if there are fundraising issues that should come up, then that's where the team members will bring me in to try to bring a a bit of bench depth to those conversations. This is such an important topic, Trish. And one of those that arguably may feel not as relevant to our entire audience, but I think it's fair to say if we try to sort of break it down, we've got listeners who are current board members, we've got people in organizational leadership, we have folks who might be interested in getting involved in a board capacity with an organization, we've got managers, mid-level managers, rank and file staff, we've got volunteers, donors, so a lot of people can have these touch points to the board, and we also obviously have more than one type of organization, we've got municipal shelters, non-governmental shelters, nonprofits, and other nonprofits. A big difference really is that governments don't have boards of directors in that sense. You know, there may be an advisory board, not the same thing, another episode for another day. Uh, But, you know, we've got with nonprofits, we've got this governance role or uh, a working board. I don't want people who are with municipal shelters to feel like this isn't relevant to them because you are interacting with life-saving nonprofit organizations in your community or Gosh, I hope you are. Uh, And they, of course, have boards. So I think it's important that, you know, whether it's 
shelters to rescues or rescues to shelters. I think it is important that we know uh, about this kind of wider collective and how all of our organizations work. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there are a million different flavors of, at, at this point, million different colors of the rainbow in terms of how are the composition of boards, the relationship that different people have with boards, you know, that that whole concept of, well, what is a board? I mean, at its, at its essence, we're talking about leadership. And, and like, like everything else that's been pushed through filters of, well, we never thought we'd be in this position, you know, over the last two years with COVID and other discussions around the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It's a perfect time to take that concept of board and leadership and governance and, and push those through filters to say, what do we really want to do going forward? What, you know, what model really works? And as you probably know, uh, many people have questioned what has been the traditional or default, you know, model of a board, which in, in many cases has not necessarily represented the community that it um, was was supposed to be working for through that organization. So in the, in the community is not the organization always. So yeah, very complex. I think talking across all of those different audiences, maybe looking for those things that are common denominators, some of the things that haven't changed, some of the things that have probably changed for good, like virtual, you know, it, so many boards are now have had to meet virtually and will have, that's had an impact on their dynamics. Well, I suppose I should start with the most basic question then. What is a board of directors? Who who are, what is, why is? Well, and let's, and let's speak specifically about nonprofit boards, okay, because there are other types of boards that aren't nonprofit. But the idea, you know, for having nonprofits in, in to begin with is that there are things in the world that government entities or individuals alone can't do for any number of reasons we don't need to get in here. So the idea that a, a culture, a society would create a nonprofit where you get tax, that organization that is the nonprofit gets tax benefits for doing some of that work of advancing certain things in the society. That's kind of where the nonprofit comes from. And you, while you can have many people working on that, there has to be, again, because we're connected to government and the law, a legal entity that has oversight for what is happening with that organization. And that's where the concept of a board developed, that a board would have governance over what was happening, not be involved in the daily operations, though we all know that many boards are, and that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But but the idea is that that board is legally responsible. They're the fiduciary agent. So the, the classic example I give in, in, in my first year as ED working with a board, we were we were having a spirited debate about something and one, one board member said to another, hey, I just want to ask the right question so Trish doesn't go to jail. And his fellow board member said, no, no, Thomas, now Trish will just never work again. We're the ones who will go to jail. And that's the simplest, you know, that's like the most negative scenario. But that is the thing people need to realize. And I think at the opposite end, we can, and I hope we will talk about all the positive things that can come from board service. But I see a lot of people who are approached, and, and you may have even had this experience yourself, you tell me, but people will come up and say, hey, I, we really need some good folks on this board. You can join. It won't take much of your time. Um, or let us just use your name on the on the digital letterhead, you know. You get this sort of low sell, 
Well, in truth, you're signing on for some legal and financial responsibilities that you should take the time to investigate, partly through the organization's bylaws and the legal documents it's created, but also do a little homework in terms of, you know, what does the state say? Because you are incorporated as a nonprofit in the state. And the state will have some things out there about the responsibilities of of a nonprofit and by extension, you know, a board member of a nonprofit. I've served in a couple of different board positions in my uh, professional life, and they have been vastly different experiences because of the individual organizations. You know, each one was a, a very different time in the maturity of the organization, the differences in the leadership at those times, uh, a more established organization with a board in a more governance role, and then a board that was very much a working board. And I think that's part of what makes board topics kind of hard to wrangle, right? A founder-run organization handpicked members by the founder or founders, you know, versus a well-established, large, humane society the needs and approaches can be different. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge, I think. It's, it's a challenge to build a board from nothing. It's a different kind of challenge to inherit a board and, and move on from there. And a part of that reassessment of the whole role of the board, what does a board look like, that's it's really been coming up in the last couple of years. It's um, is examining boards that are purpose-driven, and are uh, really looking beyond the organization to, you know, encourage others to focus in on the calls that the organization was created to advance, right? Where is the loyalty? Where is of, of each board member? Is it to the organization alone? And to tie this to what you said, a, a lot of groups that start with that founder and then the founder becomes the chair and then you inevitably see there'll be some large difference of opinion and people will line up with the founder and the people against the founder and maybe the founder triumphs or the founder is ousted. I have seen this a lot in, in many different types of organizations, but especially where the founder is one person who's enormously talented and has charisma and draws people to himself or herself. That's a real challenge to move beyond to the bigger purpose. But that's part of what many people are saying. We we need to get away from that traditional model where that happens, or even if it's a group of people founding the organization. So whether you're startup, whether you're helping move it forward, whether you're a power board, really getting back to what is the cause we're trying to advance. And I think for each individual thinking about culture, whether you are working at a very granular level or at a very strategic and, and theoretical level, thinking hard about what is my leadership? What am I here? If I'm going to get on this board, if I'm going to be a part of it, and especially if I'm going to be a chair or vice chair you know, in one of those executive positions, where is my leadership really going to take this organization and this cause, not just this organization, but this cause? Am I the right person for this? What does it really need? So there, there's a real, I think, self-assessment that needs to happen if you're approached to serve on a board. And I think especially if you're approached to serve as chair, thinking about what kind of partnership you want with the lead staff person, if one exists. Um, first board chair I ever worked with had told the board he would not be chair unless they hired an executive director because he understood the dynamics of that partnership 
and wanted someone who could still work at a higher level, but who would be able to be that representative on grounds. And you've, you've seen so many of our folks in animal welfare struggle. They form an organization. What they'd really like to be doing is still bottle feeding those kittens. But now somebody's got to run the organization, right? You know, I've tried to say to people who have, who have asked, I don't think it has to be you. That might be hard to accept, but let's think about this. Again, what is your leadership all about? Now, what is your leadership style? But what's the essence? Where do you lead well? Maybe where you lead well is getting thousands of kittens bottle fed, right? But maybe your leadership is something else, or maybe you need to look for someone else to lead the organization. Because that's a, that's a specialized set of skills. We don't all have it. We can all learn to be better at it, but not all of us really in our hearts want to lead. So given the variance in the types of organizations and boards, I just want to reiterate, it's not one size fits all, but there are things that I think are common across all boards uh, and the ways that board members can have a positive impact. So focusing on that, what are some roles that board members can and maybe should play? couple of things on that, regardless of size or scale, they can certainly help with governance through participating and planning for the organization at that sort of 30,000, 60,000 foot level. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion around strategic plans, strategic planning, plans get put on shelves, but they can help the organization be strategic by simply looking out beyond one year. So two years, three years, whatever the size and scale of the organization allows in terms of, you know, how far you can see down the road, how far do your headlights go at this point of the or- in the organization's life cycle. And then helping to put together, making sure everybody's on the same page, again, at the higher level, not with our daily procedures, not at that tactical level, but where do we really want to set our focus? How broadly do we want to get there? And then translating that into policies Hopefully, there will be people that you can then turn to to take that down to the procedural level. But setting those policies that help determine the direction and vision of the organization. I think for those people who really enjoy leading, that's something that they look forward to in participating on a board. And then super, if you are going to hire an employee, I mean, the job of the board is to hire, fire, support, steward the executive director, or maybe it's a shelter director, or whatever title that top staff member has. I think where we falter a lot is boards often tend to become the main critic of that top person, as opposed to being a supportive partner and really building a collaborative relationship with that person, and then keeping their engagement at that top staff level. If your job as a board member is to, again, hire, fire, sport steward, that ED, if there are other people on staff reporting to the director and you've got issues or you want them to help with something, you need to work through that person. Another way we falter many times is that people do love, you know, many board members who are passionate about the work get to know program staff at all levels and they engage and you you want that engagement, but you don't want people reporting up to your shelter director or your, your executive director being given tasks by board members without that person having organized it. Because again, that's all about, we got to work, we got to lift the table in the, at the same time in the same direction together. 
So board members need to be able to work through their chair and then over to that top staff person and, and down again. And I think that just requires, again, having a culture, and this is where the chair has to lead, of this is how we do it. This is not how we do it. And treating that lead staff person in a way that reinforces that. You know, another thing besides that that essential governance, which which also includes making sure that either they or someone is filing the appropriate legal documents and and just making sure the organization's in good standing on both the, the federal and the state level. And some of that can be farmed out to a paid someone, but some of it can't. And you really never need to turn your back and say, oh, well, our accountant handles that. Or because again, it is ultimately you that's responsible for that if you're on the board. So the other thing, of course, and you know, this has many different hydra heads too, that, that boards can do. And I say it can be done you know, in a, with a lot of fun and positively, is let's not call it fundraising. Let's call it ensuring that the organization has the resources it needs to get the job done, right? Because sometimes that's more than fundraising. And sometimes it's about getting stuff. Sometimes it's about getting getting assets, money or stocks or all that. But sometimes it's about making sure that you have the, the consulting resources that you need to get the job done. There were times I needed some specialized legal assistance, and I had to rely on a board member to go find an attorney who had that specialized. So helping through, let's call it networks and contacts, can be a really positive way that people help provide resources on the board, um, particularly if they if they don't want to be a fundraiser. And I think you know from our previous conversations, I, I think it's better to find people who are who enjoy fundraising and are good at it and road test to see if they really love your mission. And maybe if you engage with them, they'll, they'll love it even more rather than try to recruit people who are just passionate about your calls and then turn them into fundraisers. That I don't think works nearly as often. Who our board members are can really have a profound impact as well, right? You know, I think it's a great opportunity to find folks who can help advise the organization in a number of ways. Attorneys with legal issues or folks with PR firms locally who can assist your marketing efforts. A great way to partner with folks. You know, if you bring some fundraisers on the board, people with diverse professional backgrounds you know, one of my board experiences, I said, was uh, very much a working board, a small organization. We weren't running the sort of day-to-day operations, but we were rolling up our sleeves on some of the bigger initiatives. I helped redesign the website, for example, and that was a lot of work. Uh, but, you know, adding an attorney isn't likely to be, you know, a silver bullet for all of your legal issues. Right. And then you're facing also with some professions, an attorney is one of them. You've got to make sure that your conflict of interest documents and policies are in place um, because there are some things that you should go out and get an objective, you know, and hire. Um, that person and pay them as opposed to expecting somebody on the board to, to be engaged in that. So I think it's really important what you said about deciding what you need. And let's go back to that for a minute, because every org- every organization, every board, whether it's you and your sister-in-law, maybe those are the two of you starting an organization, right? A lot of our people that want to start sanctuaries, maybe start with themselves and a good friend or a family member, one or two family members. If you're that leadership group at that point, you want to sit down and assess what do we really need? 
You won't know what you really need till you have a bit of a vision about where you want to go, right? So why would you need a great, big, powerful attorney? Why would you need certain marketing skills? Hopefully you've already assessed at least a little bit, where's this organization? Why does it exist? And what, if we're successful, will really be our vision, even if you can't look out more than a year? And in the beginning, you do often need an attorney to help make sure you've covered this, hopefully one with some nonprofit experience. And then you're going to evolve over time once you've got one or two things that you've got, you know that program you can market, then you look for someone with that. Or maybe you've already got those people. Maybe let's 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 look at a group that's further down the road in terms of development. Maybe you've got programs that you've been running for a while, and now you're really trying to formalize those and get them out. You might need some PR skills sooner. So I think when you when you start, you need people who are good at that kind of strategic vision. You need at least one person. You need at least one person who's really good at thinking through the kinds of legal things that you may face. One person who's good at looking at finance or is connected to that community and really helping that board member say, here's what I'm asking you. So let's pretend you, John, are starting your own organization, thinking about what do you really need to get that going for how long, and then being able to turn that into what you really want to say to those people, hey, Trish, I'm starting an organization to do X, Y, and Z. I know you really enjoy and are passionate about this particular cause and making these particular changes. I think you've got these particular skills that would really help us. Would you consider joining our group to do X, Y, and Z? And maybe it is joining the board or maybe it's just working on those projects for a little while so you can road test the fit in terms of values and culture. I see a lot of people go straight from, hi, I've just met you to, would you like to join the board? And that seems to be for a lot of our groups, you know, we, we got two volunteer opportunities. You can come and file things or you can join the board. And as all of our folks that work with volunteers can tell anybody, there, there are a lot of great substantial things you can be doing in between. And that honestly is not different. If you go all the way to the other end of the continuum and talk about boards, now you're big, you're powerful, developed, you've got things going on that you have to sustain, but you're still in that evolutionary mode of what do we need to get to the next step? that's going to move us forward in our vision. And now perhaps it's changed a lot. Maybe you need much greater bench depth about things, or maybe you need to branch out into new fields that you never thought you needed before. And I've had a number of groups that have really just kind of survived. Let's take fundraising as an example. They've really survived on a kind of mix of periodic social media request, maybe some small events that have kind of become life of the community, but now they need somebody who knows how to sit down with you in your living room or your co corporate office and actually make an ass face-to-face -face for some significant money. Or they need someone who, on a financial management basis, they need someone to help them take all these kinds of numbers that are on little bitty pieces of paper or maybe an Excel spreadsheet and turn that into a real budget that they can not only track and know where they are, but they can actually package and take out to funders, right? Because the way we think about our budgets is very internal focused. And you need to be able to translate that into impact 
for donors. So what do you do? Look out to, um, I know when we were transitioning uh, the board I worked with that was attached to a municipality, we started looking for some middle management corporate folks who were really good with budgets. You know, so that's a that's an example of a deeper level of looking about for skills you need. In the beginning, I think somebody who's good with strategy planning, somebody who can help you with the accounting and finance, not always the same person, and, and talking to others. Well, earlier you mentioned the need to shift to virtual board meetings because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. You know, we've seen a lot of disruption across the board, pardon the pun. So what, what can we do as boards of directors to make sure we're meeting all of these new realities? There's a whole movement, particularly of younger professionals I know more about the fundraising end of it, and that movement is called community-centric fundraising, but it is related to the whole board issue in terms of saying, and, and, and this, this language is not mine, it's the language of others, but everything from we must rethink that default model all the way across the continuum to the model we've been using for the past few decades is archaic and toxic, right? And what those folks are pointing out, wherever you fall in that language continuum, is that the vision of most boards that have reached a certain point of sustainability or successful has been largely male, overwhelmingly white, often picked from the corporate world, which may or may not have any understanding of the real community being served. You know, there may be incredibly well-intentioned people. And again, I'm, I'm speaking somewhat from the documents I have read and the people I've listened to in that movement. So I, I want people who are really are part of that movement to, to be the voice of that. But that particular movement has established 10 principles, and they are trying to move forward in getting people to think about boards very differently. And let me try to give you a couple of different examples. One is that time is equal to money and value. In terms of being able, if you're, if you're going to bring more people from the community served into a leadership level, if you're actually going to share power, not just go out there and get input from the community served, but if you're really going to share power, if you're going to say, this community doesn't need rescuing by us, this community can rescue our, it's our itself, we will support that. Then you have to rethink, well, then what are you going to do? So back to your question about governance, that's a whole different way of thinking about governance. I do understand the frustration that people have with that traditional board. And I think um, some really healthy debate is is warranted, particularly it's, it's overdue, but it's particularly warranted at this point in time, um, because I think once things are shaken up, you often have a chance to move things forward. And you know this from our own experience in animal welfare, many shelters have moved forward with life-saving practices that they thought would never, ever work until they were forced to try them because shelter doors were having to close because of COVID, right? So if people are really interested in looking at what would that different model be like, I, I send them back to that article I mentioned about purpose-driven board, and let's let's put that in your chat as a resource that the board source chair did, because one of the things she talks about in terms of uh, how you make these changes is you, you don't have to sweep away everything to have a more purpose-driven board. You can start to make changes within your 
particular format that you've got. And then for those that are ready to sweep away and think completely differently, they may want to check out those principles of community-centered fundraising and some of the associated articles on, on boards and how they ought to change. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think the debate is really, really good. Well, we will have links to resources about this topic. Links in the show notes on your podcast player or bestfriends.org slash podcast. As you said, diversity is incredibly important. We know we've not been nearly as inclusive as we need to be in animal welfare. So it's not really just about the diversity of your board members in terms of the skill sets, but I think representing the community as a whole, it's really a must today, I think. No, I just let's go back to to something that um, you and James talked about on a previous podcast. Do you remember James talking about how often he's asked to speak on diversity? And I'm speaking here of James Evans, who's the founder of um, Companions and Animals for uh, Equity and Reform. And he said, I'm, I'm often asked to speak on that, but I have 25 years of marketing comms. I don't get asked to speak on that, right? So there's a difference. And if you understand that difference, then you also understand that a lot of what we've done in the past with boards is we've gone and gotten representation from other marginalized communities or underserved communities. But we haven't really shared power with the communities themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. We, we have, and, and again, I'm not questioning people's intentions because intentions run across all types of continuums. But when we've talked about diversity on boards, it's sort of been, well, let's bring one or two people to the table and have that voice. Well, that voice may or may not represent the whole community being served. Those voices may or may not be comfortable in a group where it's clear that what people have done is gone out and getting one, you know, I, I don't want someone to bring me on a board of all, all males and say, now represent all the women of the world. Cause I don't represent all the women of the world or women of a certain age or, you know, so when you and I start to laugh, when I put it like that, we start to laugh. Right. But we've been doing this with, you know, African-American voices, native American voice. I mean, we've done it. We've done it. And it's like, it's time we wake up to that and start really looking at people as whole people. And um, I'm, I'm not saying that people have done that intentionally, but I, I do think it's just a, it's a matter of awareness. So we've had our awareness shaken. Can we push that to a place where we're actually taking action that is meaningful for the communities we serve? I hope so. Well, speaking of previous episodes, uh, episode number 90, 91, something like that, um, we talked about the partnership we've got with the local organization Spoke Animal and Catholic Charities in Washington State. So many organizations across the country are developing these new types of relationships with new to them organizations to support all pet owners, right? Um, folks that have been victims of domestic abuse, houseless folks. There are complex issues that I think require knowledge that a lot of folks in animal welfare, we just don't have it, right? Uh, so maybe the board is a good place to bring people in to help you understand these issues and plan a strategy for the new programs to, to meet these needs. To me, that begins long before we start to look for board members of just our expanding our own networks, right? 
just uh, I I this I mentioned this thing I did in Minneapolis. I didn't feel I could go there and speak as a best friends person about a national movement. I felt local voices needed to be represented. So we pulled in several different local voices. I was not successful in pulling in a voice that represented the Native American community because my network didn't stretch that far. If I went back home to Memphis, Tennessee, or even here in North Carolina, where I am, my network is diverse enough. I would have people with whom I've already built strong and trusting relationships that I could have said, hey, we've been in this conversation with me and help me wrestle with how we present X, Y, and Z and what, you know, what will people push back on and and what will they go? Yeah, no, I feel that I've experienced that. So it was just an eye opener for me. And I had to say to my local panel in, in Minneapolis, I, I've failed on this one, right? It just shows me where there's a, a hole in my personal network. And luckily, I was able to at least get some local folks, even if I wasn't completely successful, and also having a Native American voice on there. If there's a, and, and, and I hope this doesn't sound too woo woo for people, but I really do think that long before we start thinking about recruiting people into the leadership of something we're doing, we have to do a little inner work. Because why boards often end up looking so homogenous is because our lives are homogenous. Does that make sense? So you do have to start with the woman or the man in the mirror. Uh, recruitment, uh, my board experiences, both actually were situations where someone who was on the board already recommended me, reached out to me, see if I would be interested in joining. But based on what we've talked about, you know, I think it's fair to say it may not be the best way to diversify but then how do we find new folks? Is it creating an application, you know, putting it out, putting it on your website, putting it on social media? Well, th- this is totally my opinion, and I welcome folks who have a, a different opinion. But I don't think social media is the way that social media may be the way you learn about things, but I don't think it's the way you reach out to people. I think the way recruitment works best is If you are sitting down with your fellow group of leaders and identifying at least tentatively the skill sets, the attitudes, whatever it is you feel that you need, and then taking that to the next step to say, for how long will we need this? Again, what is that horizon? Because even two years from now, you may need something different. And then where are we going to find this? And if you don't have the answers within the group, where do we find people with this skill set or this particular set of connections? Then you can think about think about it as a bullseye and you're increasingly going to the outer rings of that bullseye. Then how do you learn about that? A lot of shelters I've met don't know anybody at their community foundation. Well, it's the business of the community foundation to know the community. And quite often a community foundation, even a a small or rural one, will have an emerging leaders program. People who are professionals in their field who are, are stable in their life and are now looking to do more in the community. So reaching out then to professional organizations, the community foundation, uh, there may be some private foundations or a nonprofit center that does some leadership stuff, but really reaching out just in, in a lot of ways, like you do when you're a fundraiser, you know, not, not asking broadly to the public, who do you know that knows that knows, but asking the people who know the community who might be someone and then giving yourself enough lead time 
to be able to get to know that person, have them know you. Again, you don't have to bring people straight onto the board. You can say, we're going to be working on this marketing project for the next 16 months. And John, we know you have these skills and this interest. And will you come and work with us on the... And that, you know, working with that person month after month on that project is going to tell you whether there's a values fit with the rest of the group, whether there's a cultural fit, whether you're a good team player or it's a your way or the highway. You know, we see some of that on boards, too. So giving yourself lead time and then also looking at some of the busiest, most successful board members in the community. And thinking about going to them, start a recruitment. You know, if there's somebody out there, you're like, oh man, he would be perfect. But John is so busy. But you know, John is so good. Could we still use him in three years? Yeah, we probably could. Okay, over here on our little blackboard, let's put, you know, John in three years. Well, now what do we need to do as an organization to get to that point where we can really leverage what John could bring to this? You mentioned before, you've seen boards where people just aren't used. I think that's often, you know, either a lack of vision or it could be just a lack of time. They're not really ready to use those people. And some of the best board experiences I've had with people are when they weren't going to be free for a year or two, but we were then able to get them in the second or third or even fourth year. And we were a better organization because of it. And it gave them time to ask the right questions. I don't know how comfortable you felt asking your friends who were recruiting you questions, but um, I think a lot of board members don't know how, particularly with the smaller or medium-sized groups, don't know the right questions to ask or how to ask those questions without feeling like they're being intrusive. And you got to ask. I mean, you you are getting in a relationship with these folks and you want to know them and you want them to know you before you guys travel down this path together. Oh, Trish, thank you for the time. As always, uh, a lot more to talk about and a lot more to learn. I would just love to hear from listeners about what things they're really wrestling with. Is it recruiting technical skills? Is it culture and fit? Is it power dynamics? All three of those go into boards regardless of size and scope. And I think if people at any level want help starting with board source, and working out from that to some of these newer movements that are really challenging the default model, that's the 60,000-foot view. But to know if there's something more we should be talking about you know, at a, at a more granular level, I'd love to hear from listeners. As Trish said, we would love to hear from you about your board of directors, whether you're a board member, you're in leadership, whatever. We want to know what's working, what's not, You can do that by emailing podcast at bestfriends.org. We'll have that email address in the show notes of your podcast player, or you can just email me directly, podcast at bestfriends.org. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.